there is no like magic number. Like if you have sex four times a week, then you're happiest. Um, what we do find is that people that have sex at least once or twice a week in when they tend to be happier have two people and one was having great sex and one was not uh it definitely does contribute and i think anyone that has had great sex could agree with that <laughs> right from an end of one study <laughs> when i'm on my deathbed am i going to remember all like that late night that i stayed up till 2 a.m or am i going to remember taking that hour to take my niece to a soccer game warning true stories and science is for mature audiences only open minds are advised Broadcasting from the West Coast, here's Evan Weiss. On the show today, I have Dr. Jillian Mandage. How are you? Hi, I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, what part of the country are you in or what country are you from? I'm actually in a different, totally different country than you. So I'm uh, north from you. I'm in Toronto, Canada. Nice. So I just live right downtown Toronto. Yeah. How's it living there? Is it a nice place? I love it. It's, it's such a cool city. There's so much culture here. I just moved to Toronto uh, about two, two and a half years ago. So um, it's been great. There's amazing food, really nice people. Canadians are nice. So you should come visit sometime. It's really fun here. <laughs> I will. I will. So I know you do a lot of work with, uh, with happiness. So I'll, I'll ask you a broad question. And what is happiness exactly? Ooh, see, this is like the hardest, easiest question ever. <laughs> because what's interesting, it's like, when I do research, even if I had 100 participants or something, and I asked each and every one of them to define happiness, or even if I asked you and myself, we all come up with a slightly different answer. And yet, nowhere do I go where I actually have to define happiness so that people understand what it is. Like, we intuitively know what it is, but it's hard sometimes when you have a feeling to actually put it into words, right? It's kind of like love. Like, how do you describe that? Um, however, this becomes more problematic for somebody like me who's a happiness researcher, because when you do a research study at the beginning of the study, you have to define all of your terms. So the definition of happiness that I often use um, comes from actually from Dr. Sonia Lubomirsky, who is based in California. And uh, it's the experience of joy, contentment, and positive well-being combined with a sense that one's life is good, meaningful, and worthwhile. So it's a mouthful, but essentially why I really like this definition in particular is because it sort of has two elements to it. So there's like the, in the moment, joy, contentment, positive well-being, like how you're feeling. But then there's the second piece, right? That one's life is good, meaningful, and worthwhile, which speaks to more the, the longevity piece that beyond just the hedonic in the moment, that more eudaimonic concept of like purpose and legacy and meaning, and those two kind of collectively come together to paint sort of a more encompassing, broader picture of happiness. And that's, that's the one that I use because happiness is so much more than just like a smiley face emoji or like how you're <laughs> feeling in the moment. <laughs> I think that's a great, uh, great definition for happiness. I think it's the best one I've ever heard actually. Mm. Um, so what makes people happy then? Oh, this is a good question. And you know what? I, I have to say out of like all the questions that I get asked, the number one question that I get asked when I tell somebody I'm a happiness researcher is they'll ask me like, what's the one thing? Like, what's the magic pill, right? Like, what's the one thing that I need to do or buy or get or say in order to be happy? And the reality is that there's no magic pill. There's no like one thing. And at the same time, I think it's actually exciting and empowering because we're our own pharmacist. And part of the work of happiness is that it's work. And we have to actually figure out for ourselves what's sort of our secret formula, our magic formula, our formula for happiness, because it's different for every single person. And not only that, it actually gets even more complicated because it's different for the same person at different times in your life. Like if you think about when you were like 16, what made you happy and what makes you happy now and what will make you happy when you're 100, it's different. And so part of the work with happiness is having to answer that question for ourselves and actually taking the time and putting in the effort to ask the question, you know, what is it that makes me happy? And it seems like a super simple question, right? And at the same time, I often see this pattern when I talk to research participants. So when I ask participants and I'll say like, are you as happy as you think you possibly could be? I have never had anybody tell me yes. Every single person has always said no. You know what? I think I could be happier. I, even if you are happy, 
you still could be happier. And then I'll usually ask a follow-up question, which is, okay, well then what makes you happy? And when I ask that question, one of two things happen. It's very interesting. Like this is a pattern that I've seen over and over and over again to the point where I had to like stop and think about what's going on here. Because what happens is one of two things. One, without even like starting their exhale, they've got an answer for me. My mom, my dog, my cat, my sister, my brother, whatever it is. Or there's like a really long pause and you can tell like they're really searching and thinking about their answer. And because this was happening so frequently, I thought, well, what's going on here? And then I thought about it. I'm like, well, no wonder we're not as happy as we think we possibly could be if either what makes us happy is like a reflexive answer. So it's like we haven't even really put a lot of thought into it. We're just sort of answering. We're on autopilot or sort of quickly answering. Or we don't know. And that's a really common thing. It really is where when we actually stop to think about what is it that makes me happy, what are those things that I truly enjoy doing? We often don't take the time to ask ourselves that question. And yet it's so important because the only person that can figure out what happiness looks like for us is us. Yes, as a happiness researcher, I can kind of point you in the direction. I can say these are a bunch of different things that research shows that may be more likely than other things to help increase your happiness. But each and every one of us has to try those things out. It requires work and effort. And yet at the same time, knowing that we all have the capacity to be happier and we can do things to make us happy to me. That's the exciting part of the the happiness picture. Nice. That's uh, so. What you're really saying is it's really up to you to kind of define what what makes yeah. you happy. Yeah, a hundred percent, and figure it out, and and figure out okay, not only what makes me happy, but what doesn't make me happy. Because I think sometimes we think with happiness we have to do more all the time to get happiness or to feel happiness or to feel happy, but sometimes. We can actually not do things that don't make us happy and that can increase our happiness too. And I'm not saying like, for example, I hate doing laundry. I hate going grocery shopping, but sometimes when you're an adult, this is part of it. And we, there's certain things we have to do. And yet sometimes if we actually take an honest look at our life and think about what are those things that I'm doing that I really don't enjoy? And we can sometimes do less or do them less often, get rid of them altogether, outsource, get help do those kind of things because happiness is kind of the two-way street of doing more and sometimes stop doing things too. Jillian, is happiness sustainable over time? Absolutely. Um, that being said, like, can we be happy? Yes. The other thing is we can't be happy all the time. It's actually impossible to be happy all the time. And also, I think that part of learning about happiness is learning that we have a full spectrum of human emotions. And like, I mean, if I'm being totally honest, part of like, part of the reason I first started studying happiness was because I didn't feel like I was happy enough. And I thought, I'm a researcher. So why don't I study happiness and figure out how to be happy? And I thought, I don't like feeling some of the more challenging emotions. Like, I don't like feeling sad. I don't like feeling anxious. I don't like feeling down, depressed. And so I thought, well, why don't I just figure out how to get rid of those emotions and just be happy all the time? But yet, when I got into the work, I realized that when we think about healthy psychological functioning, we actually need, it's, it's good, it's normal, and it's healthy to actually experience the full range, the full spectrum of human emotion. So it's not about getting rid of the challenging emotions because they serve a purpose and they're part of it. What happens is when I think about happiness, the way I think about it is like a muscle. So like if you think about going to work out, right? You go into the gym, you lift weights, and over time, you get stronger. Happiness is kind of the same thing, where over time, when we do things that make us happy, over time, our happiness muscle gets stronger. And so when we think about happiness like that, it's not about just being happy. What happens is as our muscle gets stronger, our highs get higher, but our lows also get higher. So we sort of see this uptrend of positive emotion. And it's not about not having some of the more challenging or difficult times. Like we all have them. That's just life, pandemic, job loss, a divorce, whatever it is. It's about not marinating in those feelings for days or weeks. We feel them fully. We don't ignore them. We don't block them out. But part of it is how do we process those things? And how can we sort of embrace that spectrum of, of human emotion? Now, out of all human emotions, why is happiness put on a pedestal? 
I wish I knew the answer to that question. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I've thought about this so many times. That's such an excellent question. Um, Because it really, happiness is almost seen like this, like the hallmark of like good psychological health, right? Like if you're happy and if you ask any parent, most parents for their children, what do you want for your children when they grow up? What do they say, right? I want my kids to be happy. And we're always, if you look at like advertising and marketing, so much of that is influencing our idea and opinion of happiness. I think that happiness is not, in my opinion, and based on all the research I've done and read, sort of the be all end all. But what happiness does is it helps to point our compass in a direction that's conducive to supporting a life um, that really allows us to flourish. And so even though we're not necessarily always aiming at happiness, I don't know if it's just because it like sounds good on a bumper sticker or whatever, but I think about often, okay, well, if I don't really know what I'm aiming at and, and, you know, sometimes people want to split hairs and call it happiness or joy or peace or contentment or whatever, the same sort of feeling that we're talking about, what it does is it's like, if you just wander through and you have no direction, you have no idea where you're going to go. But at least if you have a compass kind of showing you a general direction, it gives you some guidance along the way in terms of how to live a good life. And I think that happiness does that for people. Um, And so it's really, happiness and kale, I think, have the best PR agents that I've ever (laughs) heard, you know? (laughs) Well, you know, some say that it might be because happy people tend to be better consumers. Mm, mm. And so that's why there's kind of like a societal push towards happiness because that's the mm-hmm. best state and where people are able to um, make nice purchases online. Yeah, and it's aspirational too, right? right? Um, and so when you look at advertising and stuff, do you know what's so interesting? Um, I When you look at watch ads, with the uh, like an actual like hands on the watch, not like a digital watch, they actually put the watch. If you go look, all of them are set to ten ten, and it's not because ten ten is a good number. It's because a marketing agency. It looks almost like a smiley face. Hmm. It's like a subliminal kind of yeah. imagery. Yeah, and I think that for a lot of people too, it's like when you're selling something, you want it to create a positive association. Right. And happiness is a great way to create a positive association, especially when it's aspirational, where you can say something in an ad where it's like, if you do this, you'll look like these people do like this. It it helps to sell things. So it it definitely plays a role as well, for sure. Happiness sells. It does. Uh, It's interesting. I know this guy, uh, a scientist. I won't say his name, but he's pretty well known. And he's come to the determination that happiness is uh, is a fleeting moment that is only achieved while feeling very low or being in a very bad position and all mm. of a sudden coming into like a really good situation very quickly. And yes. uh, so he purposely puts himself himself in like really bad situations where he has no access to money or in a, in a very depressing kind of environment. And then after seven days, he puts himself in a completely different state. And he mm-hmm. funds his bank account with, with lots of money. And he's, he goes to the mall. He does a bunch of things. He goes to the beach. And uh, he, it's kind of like a high for him. So he does this repeatedly over every, every, uh, every couple of months. So Interesting. You know, it's interesting, too, because I think there's, there's something, too. Like, if, if life is always just smooth sailing and good, you don't actually even appreciate that. Right. Like, I, I've been saying to a lot of people, I really think that one of the silver linings from this pandemic is the appreciation we have for things that we took for granted before. Right. Like if you think, if you rewound, rewound time and we were talking two years ago and I said to you, oh my goodness, what makes me happy is like going to dinner with my friend or seeing my sister or going to the grocery store, or going to the movies. We never appreciated some of those things. And it's oftentimes when we lose things or we have things taken away or we can't do the things that we normally did, do we really even truly appreciate what we had before? And so I think there's something to be said for having that that context or that comparison um, to help us to develop more appreciation and gratitude for for the good things. What is the opposite of happiness? What do you think it is? I'm asking you. You're the professional. <laughs> <laughs> so when I first started studying happiness, I used to think that the opposite of happiness was sadness. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, I don't want to feel sad or any of the challenging emotions. And I just want to be happy all the time. Um, but what I realized was that happiness and sadness aren't two ends of the same continuum. They're actually separate constructs. So you can be more happy 
and less happy, more sad and less sad. And you can actually be happy and sad at the same time. That's the bittersweet emotion. Um, So the opposite of happiness is actually apathy. It's not caring at all. It's nothing. It's feeling nothing. Apathy. Um, Yeah. So I I didn't know that when I first started studying happiness. And uh, that's been something that's really been a, a major cognitive shift for me because I always thought the opposite of happiness was sadness. And I do a lot of um, like talks. I used to do a lot of in-person talks. Now I do a lot of talking to my computer on webinars. But I usually will ask that question to um, to people in my webinars. And more often than not, the number one answer I get when I ask people what they think the opposite of happiness is, they say sadness. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's when you asked me at first. That's what I thought of sadness. Mm-hmm. Now, I Jillian, did too. <laughs> <laughs> Jillian, what do you think about a Yale study that? Despite uh, women women being a lot better off today, they mm-hmm. are no uh, more happier than ever before. Mm. You know, it's interesting. I, I've seen this out of Yale, um, a variety of different things. And what's interesting, when we look at gender differences um, between happiness, we don't really see overall a lot. I mean, do we, we absolutely, and just for clarification, like a lot of the research that I talk about comes from a Western perspective of happiness. Um, Because when we look globally, there are a variety of different um, perspectives in terms of what happiness is culturally. Um, Now, when we think about, you know, being happier now versus then, there's a couple of different issues that muddle or mud this this question because one, um, happiness research in and of itself is a fairly new field. Up until about uh, 20-ish years ago, there was not a lot of research on happiness. And um, recently, we've seen like a huge explosion in that work. So we're actually building um, a lot of literature. And I actually, I am a research assistant at what's called the World Database of Happiness, which is based out of the Netherlands. And this is the largest national or largest international, pardon me, data set looking at happiness globally. And we're trying to compile this data in order to look at trends over time. Um, part of it is that we sort of what we value is different. Part of it is that happiness is at the forefront of the conversation more than it has ever been. Um, and part of it, too, is is measurement issues. I mean, happiness in and of itself is difficult to measure because it's transient, right? Like when if I measured someone's happiness in the morning when they woke up and they had a great sleep and then if I measured their happiness when they were sitting in traffic, and then I measured it when they had great feedback from their supervisor. And then I messaged it when their internet went down. It's so transient and different that really to get an accurate overall picture of happiness, we really do need to measure it in the same person over time. And so we don't have a lot of that. And that's coming out now. So I'm actually really excited to see sort of how that works. Um, and part of the other sort of correlate, too, is looking at, you know, our understanding of happiness and what it is that makes us happy. So what you're saying really is genders are affected by by these things the same way there really isn't any any real difference. Yeah, and and even across genders, when we look at gender differences, they're they're not really a lot in terms of happiness. Like we don't say that you know males tend to be happier than females or vice versa right. or anything like that. Um, we're a lot more alike than we are different in in that regard. Does your environment play a big part in your happiness? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I think anyone that's lived through the pandemic would agree with me, right? Um, when we look at our sort of our total capacity for happiness, there are three primary components. So one is environment, right? Think about it. Our environment definitely impacts how we feel, right? We if we have even if you think about your house, how do you feel when your house is clean versus when it's messy, right? Or how do you feel when you're restricted and you're in you're in a lockdown and you're forced? Well, it depends. Uh, you know, if I was in college, you could ask me that question about whether my house was clean or not. True. And you may you may not care as much. It depends what you value, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> and your standard. Yeah, me too in college. Like, yeah, totally. <laughs> um, so their environment does play a role. Absolutely. The other big player is genetics. Um, and you know, you can thank your parents or not, but genetics do play a role in terms of our happiness. You beat, you beat not, me to the question. I was, was going to ask you that exact question right after this, but you beat me to the punch. Right. Continue. <laughs> so genetics are not the be all end all, right? Like if you're an Eeyore type person, right? A pessimist glasses, half empty. It's not to say that you can't be happy, but we're all dealt a different genetic deck and it does influence our happiness. So we have environment. 
and we have genetics, and then the other piece, which is the piece that my work focuses on, is the piece that's actually within our control, right? Because, I mean, we can impact our environment a little bit or change it, but it's hard. And genetics, we can't change our genetics. We can maybe change gene expression a little bit, but again, very difficult. And so the third piece, that's the key piece for me and where my work focuses because that's our thoughts, our actions, and our behaviors. And that piece also plays a significant role in terms of our happiness. And so when we think about, okay, thoughts, actions, behaviors, those are things that I actually have some control over and that's amenable to change. And so to know that above our genetics, above our environment, each and every one of us have the capacity to be happier. I think that that's a really an exciting and empowering thing to know um, because then the question becomes, okay, well then how do we do that? And how can I do that? Right. 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 So really what you work on is more of like the question of is happiness a choice? Mm-hmm. Right. Or yeah. And or like, or what can I do to cultivate more happiness in my life? Right. Like part of it is not a choice. We don't have a choice in our genetics, but part of it is our choice too. Right. Part of it is, okay, well, what am I thinking about? What am I listening to? What am I consuming? How does that make me feel? What am I doing? How am I taking care of myself? Am, am I doing all of those things? Because those also play a major role in terms of our happiness. Now, is being, uh, is, being, is being in a happiness bubble dangerous and can it blind you from dangers? It sure can. Because here's the thing, like happiness is not like a panacea thing. Yes, happiness is highly beneficial. Yes, when we see the data and we look at the research and we compare happy people to unhappy people, we look at physical health, right? Happy people tend to have lower rates of cardiovascular disease. They tend to have stronger immune systems. They tend to heal faster from injury. They tend to make better nutritional choices, sleep better. You look at the workplace. Happier people compared to unhappier people are more productive. They're better problem solvers. They're more creative. They get better uh, ratings from their supervisors on employee um, evaluations. But but what about... What about someone like Steve Jobs, who was notoriously not happy and kind of a mean guy? How how is it that he was so successful when he was really mean? Ooh, great question. And the reason is because a lot of times we think that success leads to happiness, right? But that's not the case. We don't see that in the data. Um, You can't grind, 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 and then be not happy along the way and then expect to arrive at happiness one day. In fact, it's actually the opposite. So happier people tend to be more successful. So is Steve Jobs an outlier? Probably. Did he do things that from a, a successful perspective made people think he was happy, like made him, for example, he was very wealthy. And a lot of people think that, you know, more money means more happiness. But really, when we look, that's not how it plays out. Um, I think sometimes things like that are glorified. But when we look at the quality of life, the quality of relationships, um, that sort of thing. There's a lot more to the story than just success as a determinant of happiness. Julian, can you name three people that, uh, in your mind, uh, defined happiness or a person who's who's living their, their happiest mm-hmm. life? Who, like, embody happiness. Yeah. Mm. So quick side note to that, and I'll answer your question. One of the things I want to do for an upcoming research study is study really happy people and start to look at what are the, the common denominators, right? What are some of the things? And there has been work in this area. Um, when I think about one, I went to Costa Rica a couple of years ago and I remember everybody there just like Pura Vida. So they were so happy and yet like they were living in, you know, con- living conditions that I wouldn't have thought would have made them happy. Um and, and even we see every year the World Health Organization ranks all the countries in the world in terms of their happiness. Canada always beats the U.S., by the way. Really? <laughs> I, know, yeah. I, know, I know Latin America is pretty high up there, though. Yeah. And what actually takes the top is the Scandinavian countries. Really? They all sort of dance for the, for the top. They, they sort of move around. But it's like Finland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, all of those sort of play in that top space. Um, and we think about, okay, well, why is that? And it's because those countries actually have a lot of social support, um, and a lot of, um, support for each other, a lot of close relationships and things like that, which we don't have as much, um, in Canada, or the U S. Um, so all of that to say, there's, there's a like happiness can actually be available in a variety of different ways. When I think about happiness, one of the other things 
that I find really interesting is um, there's a book. It's called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. And it was written by a palliative care nurse. And basically, uh, working with people on their deathbeds for so long, you started to notice patterns. And there were sort of five, the top five regrets. And one of them was, I wish I had let myself be happier. I wish I had let myself be happier. And I think one of the challenges, especially in a North American society, is that we value outcomes, work, productivity, and it comes at a cost sometimes. And so when I think about people that I know that are happy, they're people that are content with what they have. Um, they're appreciative of what they have, not to say that they can't have more, but it's not sort of that success-driven outcome. I look at my grandparents who, what makes them happiest is like seeing my niece play, right? Enjoying some of those things in life that we don't actually take time to pause and to stop and to think about. Um, those sort of things can be really powerful in terms of, you know, really evaluating what's truly important to me. And when I'm on my deathbed, even asking ourselves that question, like when I'm on my deathbed, am I going to remember all like that late night that I stayed up till 2 a.m.? Or am I going to remember taking that hour to take my niece to a soccer game or whatever it is, right? Sometimes I think part of it is really shifting and starting to really question our motives and our intentions about what we're doing and going beyond the short term to sort of the broader context. And when we start to put things like one of my favorite, I have a, a sign in my office. Uh, I love stoicism. I read a ton of stoicism and it says more fuck right? We're going to die. Like, remember, remember your mortality. And at first, like, it seems sort of morbid in a way, like, why, why do I have that in my office? But the reason I do is because I'm going to die. And I right. want to remember that because I want to shift what's important. I want to know where my focus is. I want to make sure that what I'm doing, is this so important that it's worth my time being alive to give it to that? <laughs> and that question can really help to snap into focus what feels urgent in the moment versus take a step back, bigger picture, some perspective. What is it that's truly important beyond right. just sort of how I'm feeling in the moment? Yeah, and, and that quote's actually from Marcus Aurelius. That's right. And it's uh, it's an amazing, he wrote the meditations and it's, uh, mm -hmm. it's very great. And it's interesting, he wrote that in the middle of a pandemic, which he yeah. eventually succumbed to. Uh, <clears throat> and in that environment, it's very, it's very, um, analogous to kind of like the environment that seems to be plaguing humanity at the moment. Um, yeah. <clears throat> it's hard to study happiness in a pandemic because oftentimes when you are studying something, you sort of look to history to kind of help you sort of navigate moving forward. What's the best course of action? We've never lived in a global pandemic before. It's never happened. So when we think about happiness in particular, though, there's one thing, one study that I just want to mention because I think it's really interesting. So not a pandemic, but a very stressful time. So similar in that way. Like I think we can agree that a pandemic is a highly stressful, difficult time. Um, and now in 2008, the banking crisis, right? So I think if you could imagine, if you were a banker working or someone working in finance in 2008, it would have been a very stressful time. So not a pandemic, but both very stressful times. And so uh, in this one study, researchers actually started they studied bankers during the banking crisis. And what they found was that there was the vast majority of bankers were highly stressed out and unhappy, which makes sense, right? You're like living through a major financial crisis. Yet at the same time, there was a smaller subgroup of these bankers that were actually happy and resilient through this difficult time. Hmm. And so the researchers were like, what's going on? You know, were these people just wired differently? You know, were they more optimistic or were they just sort of wired to not be stressed out? And what they found when they did the data analysis was that the only difference, the only difference between the two groups, it wasn't level of education. It wasn't years of experience. It wasn't training. It wasn't managers. It wasn't gender. It wasn't income. Any of that, the only difference between the two groups was that the, let's call them like the happy, resilient bankers versus the non-happy, resilient bankers, let's just say, um, was that the happy and resilient bankers, they didn't see a, a challenge or a difficult time as a threat. They saw it as a challenge to overcome. So when they looked at the situation, the stressful situation, they didn't see it as a threat to themselves. They, they saw it as a challenge. And when you see something as a challenge versus a threat, it completely changes the conversation because the questions that you ask are different. Hmm. It, it's, it's it's similar to, to what uh, if I can interject here what uh, Tony Robbins talks about it's it's the quality of the questions you ask yourself that mm -hmm. determine kind of like where your life goes and how you perceive things. Absolutely, 
And so what's also interesting was that then the researchers were wondering, okay, well, like maybe those people are just naturally born to be seeing things as a challenge, right? So they did a second study. And in the second study, all they did was a strictly educational intervention. So just educating people about how to see a stressful situation as a challenge instead of a threat. And when they did that, they saw a drop in um, people's stress levels. They saw an increase in happiness and an increase in positivity. So it's not a question of like, you're just born with it or not. There's a lot of this stuff that, again, like I said earlier, comes back to our thoughts, our actions, and our behaviors. And it's a really powerful vehicle for us to be able to change our perspective in a situation, especially in a situation where we don't necessarily have control. Hmm. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Interesting, interesting. And it makes me think of what you just said about uh, people, you know, perceiving things as a challenge or as an opportunity instead of a detriment to themselves. I wonder if uh, that's the reason why there's suicide uh, that's prevalent within generations of a certain family. I wonder if it's the the same kind of stories and uh, ideas of of loss or ideas of of defeat that get passed down to other people. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's interesting because it's actually pretty hard to tease out what is environmental versus what is genetic. Like, so before I started happiness, I actually studied childhood obesity. So my master's degree is actually in child, child and youth health. And it was only halfway through my PhD that I switched into happiness research. Um, and with obesity and specifically I was working with children and families, how much of that, when, when you look at it as an intervention, you know, and actually when you look at childhood obesity interventions, you can actually see benefits in the children when the interventions with the parent, children aren't even involved because parents are gatekeepers, but also parents are models of behavior, right? So there's a genetic piece in this, and there's also a lot of behavioral environmental piece. And a lot of that extrapolates into other areas too, in terms of values or what we're taught as children, or, you know, how we face challenges and difficulties, how we cope, how we process emotions. A lot of that is learned from our upbringing and our environment. And so it definitely does play a role for sure. How important is sex to happiness? Ooh, great question. Um, so <laughs> there is no like magic number. Like if you have sex four times a week, then you're happiest. Um, what we do find is that people that have sex at least once or twice a week in when they tend to be happier. Um, at the same time, there's so many caveats to what I just said, because it's not necessarily a black or white thing. We do know from a physiological perspective that we see really changes in things like oxytocin, uh, which is like our cuddle hormone, right? Or, um, our endorphins that are released. So it definitely does have an impact. Um, but again, it has to, the, the situation matters as well. Um, and at the same time, if you were to ask me, if I was to, you know, have two people and one was having great sex and one was not, uh, it definitely does contribute. And I think anyone that has had great sex could agree with that. <laughs> right from an end of one study. <laughs> no comment. Um, <laughs> um, that's, that's very interesting, too. Now, what do you th your approach on happiness? If someone comes to you um, and says they're depressed and they say they're psychiatrists. Obviously, you know, go to your doctor if you have any questions about your health or anything like that. This show is not for that. But in a in a uh, mental experiment, if someone came up to you and said, hey, you know, I'm really depressed. My psychiatrist or my said uh, psychiatrist said that I should take these pills for uh, de depression. Remember how earlier I talked about how the opposite of happiness is not sadness, it's apathy, right? right? So if you look at like sort of like on a like a scale. So if zero is apathy and happiness is 10, depression is like minus 10. So mm. it's not, um, it's not, it's not that depression is the opposite of happiness. It's actually something sort of separate. And so my work gets somebody from zero, moves somebody in the direction from zero to 10. But if you're at minus 10, a lot of the work that I do is not going to get you there. The okay. way I think of it, it's kind of like this. Okay. Like if you had to build a house, right, you need all the things that someone would need to build a house, right? You need cement and bricks and windows and doors and all these things. And if you don't have any windows and you don't have any cement or bricks or whatever, you can't build a house. And so that's what depression is. 
often, especially when there's a physiological um, under um, a reason for what we're feeling. And so there is absolutely a time and a place for pharmacological intervention. And these are conversations to have with a doctor or a healthcare professional, because, you know, a lot of the stuff that I work out, right, I talked about how my work focuses on thoughts, actions, and behaviors. So say, for example, we're talking about gratitude, right? That's an action and a behavior and gratitude and happiness are highly correlated. Um, yet if you are depressed, could gratitude help you a little bit? Absolutely. And no amount of gratitude is going to get you to zero if you're at minus 10 because you don't have the building blocks in place, right? You need all the ingredients in order to build a house or make a cake. And so they're sort of separate, similar related conversations. Um, and at the same time, what we do see is that oftentimes, depending on what it is, the other caveat I will say to that is that before, if it were me, and this is, I'm strictly speaking for myself here, and okay. I was feeling depressed or down, I would first take an inventory of my life. Am I doing certain things that I know are contributing to my happiness, right? Like there's a lot of research that shows that exercise can be as effective sometimes, if not more in some situations than an antidepressant. So am I, how, what is my eating like? What is my sleep like? What are, what am I doing? Am I moving my body? Am I eating good food? Because that is a great place to start. And once those things have kind of been addressed, if we're still having challenges, then absolutely, those are conversations to have um, with a healthcare professional. But it's interesting to note that exercise is just as effective as medication. It can be. It can be, absolutely. Can be. Not always. Um, but there's a lot of research that really shows how powerful um, exercise can be. So much so that there's actually research in terms of happiness where you see that people have an increase in their happiness on the days that they exercise and not on the days that they don't. And the other kind of cool piece of that is that we're not talking like a 60 minute high intensity interval thing, like walking movement of any sort can be powerful. And even 10 minutes of movement can have mood boosting effects that last six to eight hours and it's cumulative throughout the day. So, you know, if, if you want to get in an hour, but you can only do, you know, a 15 minute walk in the morning, maybe you can get out a bit at lunch or whatever. It's cumulative and it really does impact our mood. And actually, so Dr. Sonia Lubomirsky, who I shared earlier from California, who I shared the definition of happiness after, she's often um, quoted as saying that exercise is the most effective instant mood booster. Like when I talked a little bit about gratitude earlier, gratitude isn't just like, boom, it shifts your mood and you're good. But exercise is one of those things that it can actually change your mood immediately. Hmm. That's, that's, that's really amazing. Mm -hmm. So when you're feeling like snarky or whatever and you're doing your email, then get up <laughs> for a walk for five minutes and come back. That's what I do. <laughs> you're like, before, I, before yeah. I hit send, I should take a walk. <laughs> yeah. I need to shift my mood. <laughs> We all have those days. <laughs> yeah. Um, why is it that, do you think there's a component to happiness in the epidemic of drug use and abuse uh, in the country? Mm. Around think, the world, really. If you think about why, why are people using drugs? What's, what's the goal? And a lot of times, I mean, there's a variety of different reasons, but if we think of like recreational drugs, let's say, or even alcohol, um, a lot of times it's, it's to numb or to not feel or to escape or to uh, using that as a tool to relax, unwind, escape. And with happiness and with, with all of the emotions, one of the key things is really feeling things fully. And I think sometimes when we mask things, and that can be masked by drugs, but it can also be masked by busyness, by, you know, sort of the, the idea that oh, I'm so busy, I just go, 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 my calendar's full and I don't have time and all of those things. And when we think about true, deep, lasting happiness, there's an intentionality there. It's not an accident. It's something that we have deliberately and consciously co-created or created for ourselves. And so when we think about, you know, using substances, can they be a tool? Yeah, they can, depending how the intention behind it. You look at a lot of the psychedelic work that's going on right now, right? Same thing, where What's, what's the tool and what's the purpose behind it? Um, and, and how are we using it? Am I using it as a tool or am I using it as a mask to not have to feel things? And that question um, can really create a nuance between the exact same action or outcome, 
but the why behind it is different. And that's a really powerful part of sort of considering the outcome and the effects of that outcome. Yeah. What, but what if an heroin addict tells you, man, when I shoot up, I feel really happy. Yeah. Well, so one, there's an addiction piece there, which is a totally different conversation. Right. And then the other piece too, is that I'll, I'll get this a lot, sort of a similar thing where like, oh, well, someone will put up their hand and be like, chocolate cake makes me happy. Pizza makes <laughs> me happy, whatever. Right. And I'll be like, okay, fair enough. Chocolate cake makes me happy too. But the question becomes to what depth and for how long and how do you feel after? Right. It's like you, you're super hungry. So you stop at your favorite fast food place and you get dinner. How do you feel a half an hour later? Do you feel tired and lethargic or do you feel energized? So yes, you may feel good. And the question becomes, is that your ceiling? Is that your maximum capacity? Or are there other things you could have done that would have actually moved the needle higher? You know, so it's kind of that relative thing like, yeah, cake feels good. And at the same time, when we look at that bigger picture and have context around it and not to say that, I mean, I, I believe every food is sometimes food. And I think that a lot of times we can actually enjoy those things when intentionally chosen to do that. And when, again, food can be just like alcohol or just like drugs, uh, a way to mask how we're feeling and we can eat our emotions. And then the question becomes, are we eating them or are we continuing to eat them in our head? And so all of those pieces to the equation make it a question that's, you know, it's much more complicated to answer than it's good or it's bad. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, right? it's, it's true. No, it's true. It's yeah. True. Well, I think that's the same thing where people, you know, they want to know, okay, well, what, what, what do I do to be happy? But it, it's not, it's not a clear answer. And so that's where the magic is, but also the work is. And I think sometimes um, that's the piece that, when we do the work and we get to those things, we can actually get to a deeper level of, of all of those things. What do you think about the idea that achievement contributes to happiness? Mm -hmm. You know, not, 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 well, not, me, not achievement, like in terms of status, like, Oh, I, I have this or I have that in terms of really of like, Oh, I have a project and I completed the project and I feel very satisfied with the completion of it. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking about something recently and it's kind of interesting because um, when I was writing my PhD, the actual process of writing a dissertation is grueling. It's stressful. It's long. And, and I spent like hours checking references and checking grammar and periods. That wasn't fun. And it wasn't lost on me, the fact that I'm writing a dissertation, a PhD dissertation on happiness, not feeling happy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> wow. The irony is not lost in me on that. Um, and yet, the day that I walked across the stage at my university and I got, so they sort of do this hooding ceremony. So you go in your gown and then they put the hood over you and you get your diploma. Um, my mom has a PhD as well. And so all three of my degrees, my mom hooded me. And I remember walking across the stage and my mom giving me a hug and putting my hood on and thinking all of, everything I did was worth it for that moment because the level of satisfaction and pride and, and joy that I felt, there was a lot of hard work. There was a lot of, like, I missed out on a lot of things because I was studying instead of going out doing fun things with my friends. And all of those things were sacrifices I made for a larger outcome. Uh, and so I think the, that sometimes when we have a bigger goal in mind, we make sacrifices along the way. And sometimes we do things that in the moment might not feel amazing. And we're doing it because we're very clear and intentional that this is part of the process to get to my bigger goal that I want. And so just like, you know, hard work oftentimes is work and it's hard and it's time consuming. And yet that makes the outcome even that much better because we appreciate it more. And so I think sometimes that's not to say that we can't, we shouldn't enjoy any of it. I mean, there was a lot of work in my PhD that I really liked. I loved doing my data collection. I loved talking to research participants. I loved analyzing data, but there were certain parts I didn't like, but that's kind of how life works. And so when we're clear on the bigger picture, it can be that thing that motivates us as we work towards our goal. And what we do know from research is that goal achievement is correlated with happiness. So when we feel hmm. like we're working towards goals, it can actually be something that can be a positive way 
to help us, you know, add more happiness, create more happiness in our life. At the same time, there is a nuance to everything that I'm saying where if, if you really are unhappy or you're miserable, that's a very different question, right? When, you know, I, I, uh, when I taught, I taught at the university that I was at for four years and I had one class that had a lot of engineering students in it. And a lot of them were in engineering because their parents put them in that program and they did not like it at all. And so for them, I don't think they had the same feeling of satisfaction when they walked across the stage at their diploma, uh, to get their diploma because they didn't want to do that. So there right. has to be that underlying, um, purpose, really purpose. Exactly. Um, and when you do that, I mean, nothing that is really meaningful and when you accomplish something, it makes it that much more, um, special when you worked really hard to get it. Right. And yeah. so that can actually enhance the experience of, of happiness because you know how hard you work to achieve your goal and can make it that much sweeter. It almost seems like there's like a lot of uh, struggle right before uh, a, a feeling of happiness. Yeah. Well, even you were saying earlier about um, your scientist friend right. that puts himself in uncomfortable situations or does those things. There's something to be said because it's like, if you only know happiness and good, you have no point of reference. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's funny. He even told me this one time where he didn't take a shower for almost a month. And <laughs> and when he finally took a shower, the happy, happiness he felt by taking a shower was was one he's never felt. Uh, mm. You know, I, uh, <laughs> I, I I've never not showered for a month, but I um, I didn't fly for almost a, what a year and a half whatever, since the pandemic, yeah. I took my first flight, uh, two and a half weeks ago oh, and wow. I hadn't traveled. And I used to be somebody that traveled all the time. And I remember I flew to Bulgaria and I remember getting there and being on the beach and I've been on many beaches. I did not appreciate, I had never appreciated a beach and a flight and all of that nearly as much as I did Before. until recently right. because I just took it for granted. Like I used to go to airplane airports and if a flight was delayed, I was like complaining about it in my head, you know? <laughs> and now I was just so thrilled for the opportunity to fly that even my, when I landed the one time we had to stay on our plane for 40 minutes because customs was so backed up. We couldn't get off the plane because they couldn't fit us in the room to go through customs. And I didn't, it wasn't even bothered by it because I was just so thrilled to be there. <laughs> and so sometimes, you know, we need those things for context and to give us some perspective in terms of all of those things, because it can actually help us to appreciate things even more. Yeah, it's it's so interesting how it's so engraved into humanity and in history the the idea of happiness mm -hmm. that even in the U.S. Constitution it's mentioned. You know, the pursuit of happiness. Um, it's it's kind of extraordinary, honestly. Do you want to know a fun fact about that? Yes, <laughs> I love fun facts. Um, so. Uh, when, you know, Thomas Jefferson and that crew, I'm Canadian, so I'm not like the best in American uh, history, but when, <laughs> when the Declaration of Independence was written, uh, it was written, right, the inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Right. What's interesting, I'm a word person. I love words. And um, when we look at the word pursuit, back when the Declaration of Independence was written, the word pursuit had a different meaning than it does today. Really? So now, now, when we think of pursuit, we think about like, you know, actively going out and chasing or seeking right. or getting, right? Back then, the word pursuit, a synonym for it would be practice. Oh, so if you think that about makes it, more that, sense. And we change the word. It's life, liberty, and the practice of happiness. Wow. And that's that... exactly what it is. It's a practice. Right. Right? It's not, it's something, it's not something we chase. It's something that we do. And it's not that we achieve it. It's, it's like yoga, right? Like I've done like four yoga teacher trainings in my life. I actually did one in San Francisco. Oh, um, nice. What and, part? Uh, in, it was at the yoga sanctuary, I think it was called. Oh. It was, um, I think it was downtown. I, I don't know. It was by a bunch of hills, but I think everything there is, right? <laughs> right. Maybe Knob Hill um, or something. Actually, you know what it was close to was, um, because I was there during Pride weekend, and it was about like a 20-minute walk from the Castro. So, um, yeah, maybe. And, and it, I loved it. And one of the things about yoga that I really has helped me 
learn a lot of things is that you don't walk into a yoga studio or even if you're at home, you know, you're practicing at home, you don't walk on your yoga mat and then leave and like judge yourself. Like, Oh, that was a bad one. Because you know, like if you're sitting at your computer all day, your hip flexors are tight. So your forward fold is not going to be the same as if you had been out and about doing errands all day. And it's a practice. They call it a yoga practice for a reason, because it's always different. Some practices, you know, you're more open, you're more flexible. Sometimes you're not. Sometimes you're tired. Sometimes you're not. It's not a yoga perfect. It's a yoga practice. And every time is different. And so I love that idea of practice because if you apply that same perspective to happiness, it completely changes the conversation because then again, it brings it back to those things that we do have control over our thoughts, our actions, and our behaviors. And when I say control over, it's not like a trivial thing. When we think about autonomy, so autonomy is like the fancy research word for recognizing that certain parts of our life are within our control, right? There are things that are self-endorsed. Like there's a lot going on that we can't control. Absolutely. And there are still certain things that we do have control over. And when we focus on that and find areas of opportunity where we do have control, whether it even be like what we're watching on TV, who we're listening to as podcasts, all of those things, autonomy is more of a predictor of our happiness than how good looking we are, how popular we are, how much money we have, or how good our sex life is. What, so what, do, you mean, what do you mean autonomy? Autonomy in terms of what? Autonomy meaning, let's look at my life, okay? And I'm going to do a survey, and there's going to be certain things that I do have control over in my life, and there are certain things that I don't have control over. Like, you know, think about lockdowns, right? You can't control where you're going to go. But I can control what I'm listening to. I can control what I'm wearing. I can control who I talk to. I can control all of those things. And when we do that inventory, and then we give more of our focus and our attention to the areas where we do have control, that's where the power of autonomy comes in. Because there's a lot of people that sit and focus on the things that they can't control, right? And when we do focus on the things that we do, then it is more of an influence on our happiness than how much money we are, have, how popular we are, how good looking we are, or how good our sex life is. So you... So, so you're saying that control equals happiness? No, because we can't. I'm saying that ask ourselves where do I have control and give more of my focus and my attention there. Oh, I see. Is a much more successful compass to navigate towards happiness. So instead of worrying about things you can't control, like Marcus Aurelius exactly. said, um, right, you should just focus on things you can control. And within that space, you find more purpose and, and the ability to achieve things. And, and then as a byproduct, you, you feel happier. Exactly. The Stoics totally had this one figured out for us. Yeah. Um, right? <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of wisdom there, right? Like um, Marcus Aurelius is a great example where, you know, again, he said the same thing, like focusing on what you can control. And, and there's something, I think when you look at like wisdom through the ages and you start to see common patterns or trends, even though it may be expressed differently, those are the areas that I really want to think about and focus on because uh, there's patterns over history and over time and some of the greatest minds throughout history, we can learn a lot from them. Um, you know, Stokes being one of them for a lot of different things. Yeah, and why, why, why is it in school they don't teach things like meditations of Marcus Aurelius or, or things like that to, to give people kind of like the, the mental tools to practice happiness? Yeah, and even like taking that one step further, we learn, what do we learn in school, right? We learn math and science and geography and history. But again, nobody teaches us how to be happy, right? And yet, like, what's the one thing that's universal to all of us? You ask, like I said earlier, any parent, what do they say? I want my kids to be happy. But yet we're not taught. So no wonder we're not happy. Like part of this is not our fault. And even like in the literature, like I talked about, like this is a fairly new field, the study of science, the science of happiness. And so no wonder we're struggling because we've never been taught. So part of it is now we have to take it upon ourselves to do things like listen to podcasts with conversations like this to help us figure out for ourselves how do we do that because we were never taught. Jillian. Now, this, this uh, podcast is called True Stories in Science. Can you share a random personal story about your life? Sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> actually, so um, I do a lot of media. And I actually just uh, earlier this morning, I did a media interview. And I was talking about um, people's perceptions of me. And I, uh, you know, in Canada, I don't know the states for the for America, but in Canada, over five million Canadians have had breakups since COVID. Wow. Okay. Why? And 
so interesting, right? And I mean, for a variety of reasons, people are put in the same spot. They can't handle each other. Things are different. People are shifting perspective. There's so many reasons. But myself, like I ended a four-year relationship during COVID. Wow. And so people, it was interesting because sometimes the perception for me that people sort of ask me about is they think because I study happiness that I'm happy all the time. And I was thinking about it. You can't blame them. No, it's a natural (laughs) sort of assumption. And yet what I was sort of talking about in my interview um, this morning was that, you know, I'm a happiness researcher. This is what I do for a living. I spend my entire life is dedicated to figuring out how do we cultivate more happiness. And I'm not happy all the time because that's not the point. It's like I said earlier, it's impossible to be happy all the time. And yet at the same time, when I was going through my breakup, I thought to myself, okay, Jillian, you have done a ton of research. You have a lot of tools in your tool belt that can help you to be happy. So how do you navigate this? What do you do? And I think that something that like, you know, a lot of people don't know is that. I know, I know what it was. What was it? No, the sex. Yeah. <laughs> it was a major contributing factor to why I stayed for four years. <laughs> but it's more, but it's not enough. It's not right, enough. Right? Right. Um, because it's really sort of this encompassing thing, but bigger picture, I think it's important to know that if I'm a happiness researcher and I'm not happy all the time, then let's reevaluate things because I don't, I also, it's not like my goal is to be happy all the time. The more I learn, the more I realize that that is not the goal and that it's really about embracing this sort of full spectrum of, of human emotions. I mean, do we want to marinate, marinate in some of those, um, more challenging emotions, you know, depression for weeks or months? No. And um, it's part of it too. And I think that knowing that I'm not happy all the time, but that's also not what I want. And I don't want that for my friends or my family or for you or for you listening right now. Um, you know, when we, when we can understand that though, the beauty in my opinion in that is that it allows us to give ourselves grace. So we're having those days when we're not feeling happy, but if we know that it's okay to not be happy all the time, it takes the pressure off of us for the shoulds, right? Oh, I should be feeling this way. Oh, I should be this or that. And that's not the case. And so I think part of the conversation around happiness is one, really understanding what can we do to boost our happiness, but also recognizing that we can't be happy all the time and that's impossible. And when we can surrender that, then we can actually start to create a life that is sort of psychologically rich, that has challenging and difficult times sometimes. Because if you think about it, like even if you reflect on your own life, how many difficult or challenging things have you gone through that you wouldn't have necessarily invited into but yet, when you're in those difficult times, what happens is it forces us to show ourselves what we're capable of. And there's there's some power in that. There's growth in that. There's learning in that. And that's um, an important part of the experience of life as well. You know what makes me happy? What? Feeling melancholy. Mm. <laughs> Why? Well, it's a very strange thing. It's I feel like that's my emotional home, just kind of in this pensive kind of... Uh, you know, what's interesting is like, even when I was going through my breakup, there were certain days that I was so sad and just heartbroken. And at the same time, I had these moments of like, holy, I'm alive. <laughs> like the sadness was so sad or I was so heartbroken. Right. At the same time, it, it put me to an emotional extreme mm-hmm. that I didn't experience, that I don't experience day to day. And it made me just understand the rapture and the the beauty but also the tragedy of what it's like to be a lot right 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 that uh, there's so many things that that are part of it right uh, tony robbins says uh problems are a sign of life i really like mm-hmm. that that quote yeah <laughs> exactly yeah 100 percent. and like i think about sometimes because remember how i said apathy is the yeah. opposite of happiness right yeah. so when i'm feeling really sad or something i'm like well, the alternative would be not feeling at all. Right. And or to your point earlier, when we had the conversation about drugs or alcohol and those kind of things or busyness. Those are things that often we mask to get to a point of apathy because we don't want to feel those other things. And yet when we think about healthy psychological functioning, that's part of it. And when we numb or we don't do those things, then we're, we're closing ourselves off to the opportunity for the full human experience. And with that, Dr. Jillian Mandich, where can people find more information about you? 
<laughs> uh, so my website is my name. It's really easy. It's except that my name is Jillian with a G. So it's G-I-L-L-I-A-N-M-A-N-D-I-C-H.com. So that's my website. Uh, and that's a good hub to find me. My company is the international, it's, it's a mouthful. It's the International <laughs> Happiness Institute of Health Science Research, but it's uh, internationalhappinessinstitute.com. Um, I uh, do a lot of sort of private consulting. I work with a lot of companies doing a lot of things, figuring out how to measure happiness um, in the workplace, a lot of stuff in the workplace or um, in media and marketing. So do that there. Um, but those are both great places to find me. My website has a contact page and that goes directly to uh, email. So that's like, if you've got questions or anything when you're listening right now, feel free to do that. Or um, I'm on all the social medias. My handle is at my name, at Jillian Mandage. I'm not on TikTok, actually. Oh, you're not? <laughs> no, so not yet. Are you? <laughs> um, no, no. <laughs> I have to learn some dance routines first. I know, me too. Me too. And it just never, I never get to that on my to-do list. <laughs> Jillian, thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a, it makes me happy to have these conversations and you ask such great questions and uh, I really appreciate it. So thank you. Thank you. If you made it this far, you're truly a sage. And we want to thank you for listening to True Stories in Science. Like, follow, and subscribe to support this show.